It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In the months and years to come, it will be important to remember that this message was given in mid-November of 2020, right smack in the middle of grave uncertainty. Hey, this is Eric. As Christians, we are built for such moments as this. A pandemic holds the world in its clutches. Violence is raging in our cities. Misinformation and calculated deceptions are being masterminded by the media and political apparatus. Wildfires are raging all over this country, and hurricanes are striking our shores. On top of that, the church in America is being shoved back and marginalized. It doesn't look good right now. But right now is our hour. This is the time in which we rise up and do what Christians do best. We believe in our God and His ability to save. In this episode, I'm going to take us back to May of 1940 to remember the impossible situation that the nation of Great Britain was in. It's amazing what God will do when His people humble themselves, pray, and seek His face. To listen to this entire series on World War II, visit ellersley.com forward slash daily. So uh, when we left off, we were in 1945, and we had just been celebrating VE Day, uh, which is Victory in Europe Day. And so technically, we're right near the end. We haven't gotten to something known as VJ Day, Victory in Japan. Uh, that's coming. But it's interesting. We've been dealing with some storm clouds uh, at that time uh, where, where we should just be celebrating. There's actually some dark things, some evil, malevolent things moving uh, in and through Europe, and that's communist uh, Russia, that you actually see them taking territory that they'd set up front. I mean, I, I remember because I read it in detail. I read the statements. I read the quotations from Stalin. He's not interested in territory. He just wants to give it back to the people that originally had it. And yet Stalin now is saying, you look, I have to protect the, you know, the interests of the USSR. And uh, you know, these people are a little cattywampus. They don't think correctly. They need to be communists too. And so you're going to see something that's going to lead to something that we've all grown up with, which was the Cold War. And so as a result, uh, that's all happening simultaneously. I'm going to rewind the clock. I know I don't usually do this, but because of what is taking place, I mean, you think about the time period that I've given this series on World War II. It's basically, I think, somewhere in February I started. And here we are in November of 2020. I want to emphasize the year on that one. 2020, one of the most odd, eccentric, strange years that has ever existed, at least in my life, and maybe there's some other weird years out there, you know, that we could compare notes and say, oh yeah, you know, 1802, weird year. Okay, but this is like the strangest thing I've ever seen, and I've studied a lot of history, and this has to rank up there pretty high. I remember I was in Branson, and there was a, a TV screen going, and it was a weather channel, and it made the statement on the Weather Channel. They were even saying it themselves. This is the strangest weather we have ever seen, okay? And they said that there have been over 16 uh, major weather events that have led to over a billion dollar insurance claims. So that's 16 different ones. And then I heard something, I think it was just yesterday, something about hurricanes that they've never had so many named hurricanes in one season. And I, I think if we started going to wildfires, if we started going to violence erupting in this country, if we go to pandemics, uh, if we go to uh, political nonsense, I mean, we have, we have our fill of newsworthy material. I should say cringe-worthy material. And so this just happens to be the time period that we were talking about World War II, which ironically is a parallel. This is precisely what was going on in the 30s, and it led to this great rising up of an evil power known as Nazism. And then you're going to see other evil powers tag along, because evil looks for vulnerability, and if they see a feast over to the side and no defense, then other evil powers are going to come out. You're going to see Mussolini in Italy switch sides. He's going to turn on his longtime friends. He was an ally in World War I. Uh, well, Italy was, and you're going to see Mussolini take Italy into Hitler's camp, and then you're going to see Hirohito in Japan do the same thing. They're going to pounce. They see America vulnerable. America's in the Great Depression at this time, and so as a result, you're going to see this rise of evil, and in this process, it's going to set up a situation that's not altogether that different from, I think, what some of us in the Church of Jesus Christ feel right now, where 
at one point in time there was stability. It wasn't that bad just a few years ago. And then, but something has been happening. There's this encroachment. I always picture, you know, the Goliath in the in the Valley of Elah. Every day he comes down to a spot and he makes his boast, and the next day he takes ten steps closer. The next step, the day he takes ten steps closer, and he's just. He's intimidating them. It's like, hey, guys, you're not even coming out. I'm going to be right in your face pretty soon. And that's the way this feels to me. And as Christians, I think we have felt very uh, weak to know what to do. We feel like our voice is small. And the devil wants to convince us that we have no power right now. And that's precisely what I feel charged to tackle back and to say, this is our hour. This isn't the hour of the power of darkness. That's actually what it's called when they arrested Jesus. and you know, Satan had entered Judas and they, he was betrayed. And all these terrible things are happening. This is the hour of the power of darkness. Mm-hmm. And who won? So I don't care what it looks like in the natural realm. We just need to remember that when darkness seems to be making its move, God is not caught off guard. The question is, are we going to participate in his working? God has a design right now, and I, for one, desire to be a part of it. So this is called the mindset of victory. Uh, all night long, uh, I had the, the title, The Psychology of, uh, of Victory, and realized the word psychology could be intimidating to some people in my audience. So uh, I will, it's still, it's just the science of how the mind works. And we have, by the way, Freud didn't come up with psychology. Okay, God's the inventor of it. There's, there is a science to how our minds work, how our thoughts work. And uh, so I changed it to mindset just so no one trips over that, right? In the, either the spelling or in the, uh, the, the depth of meaning to it. But uh, I think this, this title works well. And I'm going to go back in time to 1940. So we are right at the very beginnings of the war. And something very, very significant is going to happen. Before I get to that, I sort of want to set us up for this because something is going to happen in Great Britain, which is truly astounding right in this time period of uh, May 10th through June 4th of 1940. And it's something that I feel like parallels, like I was saying, what we're going through today. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 and you who, were once, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we have this grand picture of the of the deliverance of the christ he has given us something and then it's interesting because there's an if uh in this if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel and so you'll notice that i i emboldened and uh, underlined that that statement are not moved away it's just a it's a greek word uh, to move from a place to move away. But, you know, I'm not interested in studying how we can move away. I'm not interested in moving away. I'm interested in the exact opposite of this. And so in the Greek, what you do is you stick an alpha in the front of a Greek word, and it changes the, opposite, the, the meaning completely. And so, sorry, guys, emetokinetic, Oh, I tell you what, I tell you what, you can see it on the screen. It's the uh, alpha on the front of that word. Why in the world can I not say it? It's really bothering though. Metakinetos, so ah metakinetos, there we go. It means not able to be moved from its place, unmoved, listen to this, firmly persistent. And so there's something about this. This is the thing that I think is most important. When I call it the mindset of victory, it's this. It's firmly persistent and so it's the exact opposite of being moved away of being moved off course and so let's look at that word being used by paul in first corinthians 15 thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ so then paul's going to use a therefore so if it's true that we have received this victory through jesus christ as a result of that my beloved brethren be steadfast 
immovable, there's our word that I'm having a tough time pronouncing, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So if it's true that he's given us a victory, let's remain immovable. Let's remain persistent, dogged in our determination. Why would we move off? He has the victory. So what the devil wants to cloud is this idea that there is victory, that we have victory, because you sure don't look victorious right now. I mean, look at the world that we live in. We're back on our haunches. We're weakened. We have a lessening voice at, at every time. We, we, we're used to living in a, in a country where, yeah, we may be small, but we have a vote, right? Now we're sort of wondering that. Does our vote even matter? Does it even count? We have all sorts of unique things that we as the church of Jesus Christ are feeling right now. And as a result, it's important that we remember the lessons of history. Doggedness. I just think that's a great way of describing this immovability. Doggedness. So there's, I'm just going to whip out four stories out of scripture that show this and that God is going to highly acclaim it. He's going to underline it, highlight it, and say, this is what you need. So the first two are in regards to Jesus' teaching on prayer, saying, you want to get answers to prayer? I'm going to teach you the pattern. Here's the mindset of victory. And so he gives the story of the neighbor who's seeking bread. You guys remember that story? And the guy's short on bread. Someone's coming to his house. It's late at night. He knows his neighbor has it. So he goes to his neighbor's house and starts knocking. Now, what's funny is when we hear that story, we're <clears throat> sort of disturbed. It's like, buddy, it's late at night. And so the guy doesn't respond, and the neighbor keeps knocking. King, 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 king. You know what? If someone doesn't come to the door, just go home. No, no. He knows that his neighbor's in there, and he knows that his neighbor has what he needs. King, 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 king. So he keeps knocking. Finally, the neighbor has to acknowledge that he's there, and he says, hey, go away. I'm in bed with my family, which is a strange statement to start with, right? That isn't sort of the American way of going to sleep at night, is to pile everyone into one bed. However, that's sort of what we see here. King, 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 king. You'd think that that would be enough. Awkward. Okay, you're in bed. You're, you're asleep with your whole family. I'm waking up the whole family now. You know what? I'm so sorry. Instead, the guy keeps knocking. Why? Because he knows that his friend is there, his neighbor's there, and he knows his neighbor has what he needs. You know that Jesus is the one telling the story, and he is going to compliment, applaud the persistence of that neighbor, even though for all of us, we're just horrified. <laughs> because Jesus himself is basically saying, I'm the one in the house, and if it doesn't seem like I'm coming to the door right away, you keep knocking. Your job is to be persistent. This is the mindset of victory. You want that bread? You keep knocking for it. Never give up. Even if in the natural realm, time is passing and it seems like there's silence on the other end or on the other side, in this case of that door. We have the widow seeking help. Remember from the unjust judge? And the way I picture it is she comes in and she just sort of keeps pulling on his shirt sleeve. And the guy's trying to deal with other business and she's just like, sir, 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 oh, and it's just driving him crazy, right? Again, it's one of those stories that is just socially off. You know, it's like, you don't do that, lady. And yet, even an unjust judge is going to give this woman what she wants because she is persistent. How much more so does our Father in heaven give to us when we stand in that same place with that same attitude of the neighbor and the widow? This is in the context of prayer being taught to us. This is the mindset of how we approach it. We know God has it, and we know there's no other place to go to get it, and we know also that we honor him by persisting. He's asking us to do that. So many of us hold back because we're just thinking, that would be irritating. I've had prayer times, in desperate prayer times, where I'm thinking about these stories because I'm being instructed by the Spirit of God of what to do. And I've had times where I make that noise, king, 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 even in my prayer time because it's so irritating. I'm like, king, 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 king. I make that. That's what I'm doing, even as I'm praying. King, 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 king. God, do you hear that? King, 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 king. It's irritating to me. I have to imagine it's irritating to you too. King, 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 but I'm not going to stop. King, 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 until you answer. There is nowhere else that I have to go, and I know you have what I need. And as a result, I've always seen God faithful. Always. I mean, that's the testimony of my Christian life, and it's been going on for a long time now. 
I have seen my God faithful. He doesn't do things in my timing. He doesn't do things the exact way that I would have prescribed. He does things exceedingly and abundantly beyond in his answers than I would have guessed. As I always like to say, he's frying bigger fish than Eric knows to even ask for. God is God. Our job is to be believers. A third story, I've always known as the Syrophoenician woman. Okay, the woman that doesn't really have the Israelite access unto Jesus and unto the promises. It's the Gentile type of mindset that we have. And yet what you're going to see this lady, she has a desperate need. She needs help for her child. And so she is going to come to Jesus and start asking him over and over and over again to help and to heal her child. And you know what Jesus does at first? Ignores her. You know, that would be enough for most of us to say, I don't think he's, he's interested. I mean, first of all, you're a Gentile, okay? Uh, you're outside the pale. And so as a result, it's like, okay, that makes sense. He's just not even allowed to talk to you. And uh, then finally, she just keeps going, by the way. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you remember that story, but she just is obnoxious. And even the disciples are like, could you get, get this lady? Do you want us to get rid of this lady? And then he says, look, lady, I have not come for you, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel, uh, lost children of Israel, and this is this is what what, I, what I've come to give them. And then she says, "Well, even if I am a dog and I'm not one of the children, the dogs can even eat the scraps off the table, though. Do you have any scraps for me? I mean, what a mindset! She just will not relent. You know, most of us gave up a long time ago. Being called a dog, I don't know how you're doing with, with that, and yet." Jesus is going to stop with awe, and he's going to say, now that's faith. And she is going to get what she asked for. It's the mindset of victory. Do you know where the answer is? Is the answer in anything in this world? Okay, is it in a political apparatus? If we just have this guy as the president, then you fill in the blank. You see, we as Christians have to be pruned and purified in this time. For God to get us down to brass tacks, what is this about? Our confidence cannot be in anything of this world. It is in Jesus Christ. Do you know where the answer is? Okay, when you know where it is, go to that door and knock. And knock and knock and knock until you see God open that door. The four that bore the paralytic. So again, this is a great story. And Jesus is going to recognize the faith of the four that are carrying this man on a mat. He's, for whatever reason, his ailment disabled him from being able to walk. So he needs to be carried by four, presuming men, right? And so they're carrying this, this man to uh, this house in Capernaum, which is just swallowed up with people. They can't even get through. And yet where most of us would get to the door and recognize the big mob and we would just set down the, the guys like, well, I brought you as far as I can bring you. These guys know it's operation get to the feet of Jesus. If you don't get it to the feet of Jesus, there's no other way that this guy can be healed. He can't just be healed being, you know, 100 feet from Jesus. He needs to get to the feet of Jesus. And so they actually climb up on the roof, break through the roof, and then lower him down. Persistence. Doggedness. It's the mindset of victory. Because most people say, but there's a crowd. And then they go home. Oh, but there's no way in. I mean, you'd have to go up on the roof. That's the only way I could imagine it. And they're like, okay, we'll go up on the roof. Well, how do you get through the roof? I don't know. I mean, there's so many points in time that you would have turned back. How do you lower them down? I mean, talk about it, the need for some kind of rope system too. It's like, hey, this is complex. There's so many different things, reasons why we forsake and give up the knocking, give up the yanking on the shirt sleeve. We give up the begging of Jesus. Jesus, please, you're the only one that can heal my child. Please, I know you will do it. I know your nature. Do you know his nature? Do you know that he delights when we persist? So breaking through the boards, look at what is beyond. So I'm going to give you an illustration here. This is fascinating. So... Leslie's brothers uh, both have uh, black belts in Taekwondo, and uh, it's intriguing to my, my kids. They're always fascinated with that. And so I remember John, Leslie's brother, giving me this illustration once. This is a long time ago, but it still stands out in my mind. 
because they had to break through to even, I think, get their black belt. They had to break through a certain amount of boards. And it's one of those things that if you and I, without any training, okay, just went up to these boards and tried to punch them, we would probably break our knuckles. And so it's like, first of all, we always think, for those of us that aren't in martial arts, it's like, why does anyone need to break a board? <laughs> However, it is sort of cool once you get into it. It's like just the thought of breaking boards is sort of neat, right? But so John said the secret to breaking a board is not to focus on the board. That's how you break your knuckles. It's to focus on what you're trying to reach, which is on the outside of the board. So you want to get your fist there. And so as a result, you're looking beyond the boards, and that's how you break through the boards. Okay, now that means very little to us because I'm not going to bring up a whole bunch of boards and say let's practice right now. However, it's the same truth in the kingdom of heaven. There is something beyond. Like right now, you see the immediate. If you focus on the immediate crisis and you try and hit it, you oftentimes break your knuckles because you'll hit it in your own strength, fear, anxiety, various things. But if you know what God has promised, if you know what God has said, this is going to happen, you say, you, you actually, it's like knife through soft butter through the challenges that you face. One of my illustrations of the Valley of Elah with Goliath there for years has always been this, because the Valley of Elah means the Valley of the Great Tree, which is really fascinating. Most of us don't picture a tree in the story, but there was a huge tree. Probably, you know, you see this pile of chairs over here, like 20, 24 feet in circumference. I mean, just a massive tree. And so the whole valley was known after that tree. And likely David uh, raised his, you know, took care of his sheep down in this valley. It just makes sense because the, the cave system that he hung out in or hid in when Saul was trying to find him was in that same valley. And it's called the Cave of Adullam is there. And so very likely David was familiar with this. It's a great spot for shepherding. Right, because it's, there's protection in a tree, shade by day. There's cave system to sleep in at night and to, and to make sure you can protect your sheep. It's like a built-in sheep pen. And uh, so that's just you know, the thought. It doesn't say that in Scripture that he tended to his sheep there. But imagine, there's this tree. The tree to the Jews, these, they were called Ojigian, which basically means mighty from the beginning. Uh, they were almighty trees. They were pictures of God on the landscape of the culture because they were there before the Israelites took the land and they were there long after they died. In other words, they were just like these pictures of God. They were massive. And you know, so in Isaiah 61, when you hear the term oaks of righteousness, it's talking about those trees, terebinth uh, in the Hebrew is the word. And so I picture this, David coming up against this giant, okay? Whether he was nine or to 12 and a half feet, depending on which kind of cubit you use, he's a big guy. And David not so big, right, comparatively. And so if you're looking David against a giant, you know, you're going to bet giants, right? But there's something else in this story. David has his boards in front of him, and he's ready to hit. But what is he going to see? My mental picture is he's going to see that which is beyond. He's going to see the mighty tree, the picture of God Almighty. Of course, if you really want to take it, you're going to say the tree, the cross. He's going to see the victory of God. He's going to see the triumph and the ability of God. And then it's like a knife through soft butter. David has confidence that is rather ridiculous when he's sitting in that situation with some stones, no armor. He's a little, you know, teeny guy against this massive champion of Gath. But he sees something and he has a confidence, the mindset of victory. He's seen that which is beyond, and he's not just focused on the trial in front of him. He sees that that trial cannot stand before that which is beyond. So May 10th through June 4th, 1940. This is a rough patch of history, and as I've studied it in Winston Churchill's memoirs, it is a... I feel it in a strange way. In a, in, a, in a sense, I've sort of felt it over these past eight, nine months, whatever it's been since COVID. We, uh, we, we probably should have an official calendar for how long we've been going through this. So, you know, like the prisoner has a, a mark on the, on the prison wall. <laughs> but uh, the season that we've been in has had these moments where it feels like darkness is gaining the upper hand. And that you're thinking, oh, well, our... Our American government wouldn't allow that. 
and then it does, and it gets worse, and then it's one more degree worse, and then it's like, well, if that continued, then this could happen, and then it does happen. It's like, wow, I still remember Sandy back in January or February. Do you remember we were in a staff meeting, and the statement was, uh, someone brought up the virus, you know, this virus in China, and I sort of chuckled to myself, uh, and then Sandy said, well, you know, I've heard that this could actually Im impact uh, life here in America, that they are already starting to whisper about what this could mean. She goes, it could impact our training. And I go, oh, that'd be ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, we didn't have an expectation that this could do anything. Well, first of all, I still have a very little regard for this, this virus. I know it sounds terrible, but it doesn't intimidate me. It doesn't seem like that big of a giant. Like, I mean, Goliath, I can understand why you tremble a little. But this isn't Goliath. I mean, bubonic plague, maybe. Coronavirus, COVID-19, it's like a little squatty thing. I almost feel like if you gave me a chance and I could just get in a ring with it, I'd beat it up. You know, just give me a chance. Someone, you know, set up the fight. People, you know, get Las Vegas betters on this. I want to take this guy on. <clears throat> May 10th through June 4th, 1940, we got a sizable opponent that is standing up against Great Britain. And so when I stick myself in the shoes of being in the British Commonwealth in that time, or especially on the island of Great Britain, this is a scary time. And you could, you could imagine why people would tremble. So this time period is also commonly known as the darkest hour. So on May 10th, uh, Great Britain has declared war, not on May 10th, this was September 3rd of 1939, the year before, on Germany. Germany has been taking territory throughout Europe. Uh, they put their, their troops in the Rhineland, which was actually against the Versailles Treaty, but no one did anything. It's like, well, you know, peace, peace, peace at all costs. And then they're going to actually take Austria, and no one's going to do anything. And then they're going to take the Sudetenland, and no one's going to do anything. And then they're going to take uh, Czechoslovakia. No one will do anything. All illegal things, movements, and everyone in the world is watching this going, I can't believe this guy's getting away with it. Even the Germans are thinking, there's no way. All the German generals are like, Hitler, there's no way that they're going to let you do this. And even in his first steps, Germany wasn't strong. And if any of the allies had stood up against him, it would have quashed him in the beginning. But Germany knew, Hitler knew one thing. First of all, he felt like he would even declare he had a counselor, and it was the voice, capital V voice. He was, he was led by something rather evil. And he knew that they would not do anything. They wanted peace more than they wanted war. And they didn't want anything to do with fighting, which is a definite truth. I mean, I, I can understand that. I wouldn't want war either. And so finally, when he invades Poland, Great Britain declares war. France declares war. And so we now have this war, but it's called the Twilight War for the first uh, six, seven months. No, it's about eight or nine months. They don't, nothing really happens. And then in one day, suddenly Germany is going to sweep into Belgium, Holland, and France. And France is going to fall. And so right at this time on May 10th, you have France getting ready to capitulate and to find peace terms with Hitler. You know what that means? That means out of all the world, there is only one country that is still standing against this evil. America won't touch it, they're in a great depression. Roosevelt's like, I'm so sad for you, I'm so sorry, but we're over here, we have our own issues, we can't help you. There is no one that is standing, and Great Britain is not prepared for war. Great Britain has been disarming their military. It's like the political correctness of their age. We can't have, we can't be more powerful than any other nation. This is literally the political correctness in the 1930s. So they are disarming so that they will not be more powerful than any other nation. <laughs> uh, and meanwhile, what is Hitler doing? He's arming in secret. And so as a result, it's like it's never really a good idea to disarm when you have evil in this world. If everyone's just good, well, then maybe there's no issue. But if you believe the Bible, you know, you sort of know something. It's like a hint. It's like, no, you may, not, you may want to think twice about this. And so as a result, Great Britain is in a desperate situation. France is going to fall. And right on May 13th, Winston Churchill is going to be made prime minister. They're gonna kick Neville Chamberlain out, who's the one basically responsible for all this nonsense. 
Winston Churchill is going to inherit the worst possible leadership situation maybe any man in all of history has ever stepped into. It's a terrible situation. And it's, it gets worse than that because all of the British troops, their BEF, their British Expeditionary Force, has gone over into France to help France stop this wave because they're not, no one's expecting in Great Britain that France is going to fall. And so they move over. Basically, whatever military apparatus they have, it went over to France. And so it's upwards of 70 to 90% of all the military strength of this entire country is over there, and France falls. So they're going to retreat with all of their stuff to the shoreline of France to a little town called Dunkirk. So many of us have understood the, the story of Dunkirk, and the, it's called the deliverance of Dunkirk or the miracle of Dunkirk. But what I want to do is, the reason I'm backing up to this and rewinding, because we've covered Dunkirk in this series multiple times, is just to remind ourselves that in history, and not that's altogether far removed from us, history, we see a nation hanging in the balance. And what is threatening it? A tremendous evil. The Nazism is a tremendous evil. It's hard to even describe because it was so malevolent and what it, how it treated the weak and those that were different than it was extreme. If you didn't stand with Nazism, you were brutally killed. If you did not fit the grid for Nazism, which was basically human perfection, you were eliminated in a very harsh and degrading way. And so as a result, you see this evil moving and now it's staring at Great Britain from across the English Channel about 20 miles away. And I mean, could you imagine this feeling, especially at this moment when Winston Churchill is inheriting the prime minister position. He has a, a divided country. Everyone's arguing with each other. Everyone's mad at someone else. He, they have no military strength. They have no ability to borrow. They are in debt from World War I. So it's not like he can just go and say, okay, I have a lot of money. I may not have any uh, military strength, but I can at least hire uh, armies from other countries, or I can hire manufacturing plants in America. They need money. He has nothing. So is he going to go to a country like America who's in a Great Depression and say, hey, give us all you have? You see the, the tensions that are going on? He's the lone guy now in charge of a country that, I mean, Philip Patan, who is uh, the one who took control of France uh, when it fell, he's like the puppet under Hitler, and Patan said, in three weeks, Great Britain will have its neck wrung like a chicken. And America thought the same thing. The ambassador uh, to Great Britain that came back to America to report to Roosevelt says, don't give any support. They're going to go down. It'll just all be wasted. There's no way they can stand. Okay, so what's the status of the church right now in America? Okay, we're backed up on our haunches, and we're not looking very strong. We're divided amongst ourselves. It's all not altogether different than what we see here. And what, 330,000 soldiers are in Dunkirk surrounded. So I'm going to give some logic in the darkness. Remember how I talked about the boards and breaking through the boards, that you need to see that which is beyond it? There's a certain mindset, as I said earlier, a psychology that we have as Christians, and it is based around God's word. It is based around God's nature, that no matter how dark it gets, we see something beyond it. So the logic in the darkness. God is with me now. He is in control. Good will prevail. Light will break through. Justice will be served. Every knee will bow. Therefore, I'm going to rejoice. It's an attitude that the saints of God have carried with them since the resurrection of Christ. You see, there is something that has changed in our mindset. We recognize he is the son of God and he has ascended to the right hand of majesty and all things are beneath his feet and he's promised to come again and he cannot lie. Therefore, our entire worldview and our grid is different than the world around us, which is based upon natural events and natural occurrences. Well, if men are good enough, maybe we could get out of this evil. Actually, our reality hinges upon God being good enough, God being powerful. And as a result, our hope 
is in him and not in the systems and the apparatus of this world. So we have a man built for the occasion. I love studying Winston Churchill. If you've gone through this series, you'll know I'll bring him up every now and then. I'll even mention, just sort of offhandedly, that my middle name is Winston. But I am very impressed with this man, and I'm very impressed with how he is going to handle this situation because he is going to have, he's going to be faced with some very thick boards that he needs to somehow break supernaturally, but he is going to have a confidence that belies every bit of reason In most people, they cannot figure out where this guy comes from. He just sort of came out of, uh, out of nowhere and gave confidence to a people that shouldn't have any confidence, guys. I mean, this is a very bad situation. They have 330,000 soldiers trapped. They are surrounded by the German forces, and they're backed up to an ocean. And so, and they have a, the more powerful Air Force, which means even if you were to go into the waters and say get into a big naval ship and try and cross with all your men, the Luftwaffe bomb it. And so this is a very, very difficult situation. How are you going to get them out? For most people in Great Britain at this time, they are actually swallowing the hard fact that all of their young boys in their entire country are basically about to be annihilated. Could you imagine what that would feel like for the whole country? Especially if Your boys were over there. And so this is going to initiate the first national day of prayer is going to happen right here in the midst of this. And this nation is going to pour into churches. And they are going to pray that God would intervene. God, we have no idea how you could do this, but we know you can. And it is going to change the course of history. Because right now, if you were a betting person and you were going to say, okay, We have a war. I don't know if to call it a world war because it hasn't lasted very long and everyone's fallen to pieces already. I mean, literally no one has stopped the Germans once. Not even been able to give a good resistance. Not even been able to kill a few. I mean, this is just ridiculous. France, one of the most powerful historic nations in the world, in all of world history, is going to fall like a house of cards. And then Great Britain, who has always, of course, been a mighty nation, is unprepared for this. And if you were going to bet right now with all of their soldiers surrounded, I mean, I remember hearing that one guy, I I think it was in my last message I gave, uh, talking about if my people pray. He was saying all that was left over in Great Britain was a dad's army with broomsticks to train with. They they didn't have anything. This is all that was left is a whole bunch of dads. I didn't know if I should take offense at that. It's like, hey, we dads can be tough cookies. But at the same time, I, I could understand that that would be a little disconcerting. And so Churchill is going to step into this situation, and he is going to be dauntless. Now, behind the scenes, he could have been trembling like a leaf. I have no idea. I don't have that piece of information. Because even in his memoirs, though he is going to explain the situation, he is going to have the sense that providence, as he would call it, has brought him to this place. This man is strangely fearless. It's almost like he's being held by God for such an hour, to have a sound mind and to have a reasonable judgment. And so when he takes office on the 13th of May, he is going to give a speech. I think I have that speech for us. May 13th, 1940, speech to the House of Commons. This is what he says. This is in the midst of such darkness that you should just sort of like fold up. Uh, Just give up. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war. By sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and how hard hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized, no survival for the British Empire, no survival for all that the British Empire has stood for, no survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. I'm going to read that line again. In the natural realm, there is no way that they can survive. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure 
that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. Whoa. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. We could all use a voice like that in our life. Could you imagine if a voice like that came into the church and just said, let's do it. This is our hour. The cause of Christ is not going to fail in this hour. In fact, this is the time for the greatest harvest that has ever been seen on earth. Let's snub our nose at this darkness that is mocking us. You see, we should know enough from the biblical account to know that when all goes dark, light is about to burst forth. So then this is, he's going to take the British leadership into a confidential meeting, and this is what he's going to say to them. In these dark days, the prime minister would be grateful if all his colleagues in the government, as well as important officials, would maintain a high morale in their circles. Not minimizing the gravity of events, but showing confidence in our ability and inflexible resolve to continue the war till we have broken the will of the enemy to bring all Europe under his domination. No tolerance should be given to the idea that France will make a separate peace, but whatever may happen on the continent, we cannot doubt our duty, and we shall certainly use all our power to defend the island, the empire, and our cause. So the boys are trapped in Dunkirk, and there is not even a glint of hope. I think that if you were to ask even the highest level government officials, how many men do you think we could get out reasonably? 10,000 would have been the grand goal. That means they were all prepared reasonably, looking at all the data, all the statistics, to lose 320,000 young men because they cannot help them. I mean, what do they need? They need a military to help them. That is their military. How are we going to do this? So even to get 10,000 out was the great goal. And then, of course, as I said, the National Day of Prayer. Churchill has an idea, and that is to requisition all of the boats that were, I don't remember what it was, like 20 feet or longer, whether it be uh, for fishing craft or for uh, pleasure craft, didn't make any difference. They all were a part of the British Empire now, and they were under his jurisdiction. And so he requisitioned them all, and some of them were even floated by the very guys that owned them. And the strangest thing happened. But there was a cloud cover over the English Channel, which kept the Luftwaffe, their, their massive, amazing air force, to be able to see anything. And the, and the, and the, and the seas were completely calm. And as a result, all these boats were able to make it across this 20-mile stretch. I don't remember how many there were, but like thousands of boats are coming over. And these men are jumping into fishing boats. And literally, they're going to get out over 300,000 men. Never in all of the history of Great Britain had they seen anything like this. And everyone knew who to thank. Everyone knew that this was supernatural. What's amazing to me is that Churchill knew that he was going to have victory in this. I, and every time I go through the story, I'm just thinking, this is so preposterous. And yet he wouldn't melt before the impossible odds. He believed that good would prevail. I mean, if there is a God in the universe, he would not let this, that our, our, the only nation on earth ready to stand against this, fall. I know we will win. Isn't that just a interesting logic it's the mindset of victory and you're going to see god answer it i mean the call to a day of prayer you have to admit was a good idea so this is just a picture of dunkirk uh there's a lot of different pictures not all of them great pictures but pretty amazing on the beaches just imagine what it would be like especially when the luftwaffe start flying over and dropping uh bombs or shooting at you at you and you don't have a lot of cover there. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty fearful spot to be, knowing that you're surrounded by the mighty Germans and backed up to an ocean. It's not altogether different than the Red Sea, is it? And I still remember Josephus's line, and I, I said this in a sermon, I think, two weeks ago, but Josephus, in recording the, uh, the, the situation of Moses at the Red Sea, he was a Jewish historian, and so he has, the, he has the verbal traditions passed along for the Jews. It's not the biblical account, it's just the verbal he says that Moses declared it is no better than madness to despair in the providence of God now. I mean, he's backed up to a Red Sea. 
There's mountains on both sides. He has the most powerful military force coming against him. It would be madness to despair right now. Why? Because God is in control. God sees this. He didn't go through all of those plagues, go through all of this thing to get us out here just to leave us here. God is in control. Sure enough, the Red Sea's part. And what you're going to see is a similar thing. It's different. It's not dry land, but it is pretty extraordinary. So you can see in this map, uh, there's says England. Great Britain is uh, that blob up to the top left. And then you have the Strait of Dover, the English Channel. You're going to see Calais straight across. And then Dunkirk is just to the right of it. And that's where they're located. So they're located in a decent spot. You have to admit, as far as for crossing, it's a lot better than some of the other locations they could be. But still, that's a, that's a long distance. So I, I zoomed in for you. Not that I should have done that on the last uh, one. All right, so then this is right before the deliverance of Dunkirk. So I want you just to sort of see a guy staring at impossible boards and what he's focused on and how he's going to communicate to the nation. It's just truly amazing. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. So this idea has been around for a long time. And in my Sunday series that I started a couple weeks ago, I'm dealing with the rescue of a nation. It's, you know, this, these, a lot of these things parallel. Uh, I mentioned Jehoshaphat, I think it was even yesterday. And always, I'm, I'm so fascinated by Jehoshaphat because the situation is terrible. It's a terrible situation. There's three armies that have ganged up. And I don't know if you sort of feel that in, a, in America too. The church feels ganged up on. Uh, like politically, the media, even like in our own ranks, the church just isn't loyal to itself. And so you feel like there's some traitors out there that are siding with political correctness against the truth. And so even in our own ranks, we feel that. And so as a result, it's like that. It's the battle of three armies against Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is just little Judah and doesn't have a lot, doesn't have any strength, and is even acknowledging that to God. So he calls everyone together for a fast. Sort of like what Winston Churchill does, right? He's going to call for a national day of prayer. And God, in the midst of that national prayer, national day of prayer, is going to stand up, have one of his prophets be filled with the Spirit of God, and he's going to speak the Word of God, which is quite profound. Second Chronicles 20:17, and this is what was said: "You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord." is with you. See, if you have promise, if you know what God is going to do, should you fear the thick boards in front of you? You see, it depends on what you focus on, but there are three armies out there. You could focus on that, or you could focus on the fact that God said, I'll beat them. You see, the mindset of victory comes with fixing our gaze, not on the natural realm that is in front of us, not on the news reports that we are given, not on the odds of victory, what are the odds of victory right now? And everyone, there's all these statisticians that are always like, okay, well, I think you could get 10,000 of the 330,000 out, and that would be reasonable. I don't care what the statisticians say. I care what God's word says. And God says, I'll fight for you. I've got this. You go out. He's still commissioning them to go, to move. They still need to, just like crossing the Jordan, Joshua's... Uh, troops crossing the Jordan. They still need to take that step into the Jordan, then it parts. They still needed to march around Jericho. God's got this, but we still are asked to believe and to move. We still need to move that punching arm 
towards those boards. But our focus is on his ability, not on the thickness of the boards. So one of my favorite pictures in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 20, 21 through 22. Let's think about this. This is good old-fashioned logic, heavenly logic. If God is going to fight, and it's not up to us to win the battle, and he has promised that he is going to win, and you're supposed to go out the next morning to meet the enemy, what would you do? Would you go in and you know, be trembling with fear as you're, as you're navigating the steps forward with your gun rattling in your fist? I don't think they had guns back then, by the way. However, what, how would you approach it? Well, I think this makes total sense. This is just logic. Jehoshaphat appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were rooted. The Bible is just the master of understatements. Oh yeah, yeah, those three armies, they were rooted. Well, how did that happen? Well, I don't know, the Lord set ambushes. It's like, what does that mean? We don't know. But we do see something. We see Jehoshaphat believing. So he is going to set his singers in front. Why not? Makes total sense. They're going to be declaring the goodness of God. You see, this is a pattern for all of us. When we get to Dunkirk, and it seems like the national safety is hanging in the balance, all of our young boys are surrounded by evil. Lord, what should we do? Well, to go and seek his face, humble yourself and pray and seek his face. Why? Turn from your wicked ways. You know, that makes total sense. And then when he says, you know what? My job is to heal the land. My job is is to do the God stuff. When you have that confidence that he is gonna do the God stuff, you might as well stick your singers out in front. It's called leaping for joy. It's like, why would we rejoice always? How can we give thanks in all things? It's because we see what is beyond the boards. We stare at the boards and go, I can't thank God for thick boards. But you can thank God for the fact that he is greater than the boards and that he has said no board can stand against me. And if you trust in me, every board will be broken. Right? I'm paraphrasing some scripture there for you, right? In other words, there is nothing that is impossible for God. And we can break through all boards with the God who gives us strength. You see, we have been given promise. We have been given his word. And so the mindset of victory is not to focus on the temporal. It's to focus on the eternal. And as a result, when we do, we can lead Whether or not any of us are ever put in Winston Churchill's shoes, I sort of hope and pray for all of us that we're not. That is one tough job description. But if we are, it's the same truth. But we all need to apply this in our individual levels, whether it's over a home, a marriage, kids, whether it's in a ministry setting, over a church. Each of us has a role to actually lead, to rise up in the midst of the Dunkirk moments and believe God. God is in control and the rest of the nation could go, that's ridiculous, I don't see God at all. It looks like evil's in control. God is still seated on his throne and all things are beneath his feet and I believe it. That's what a nation needs to hear. You know, and right about now in American history, we could use a little dose of that. Because right now, it sure doesn't seem like God is in control of this country. It seems like evil men are. And as a result, we could despair that all of our young are being surrounded and being encircled, and there's no hope for them. And if we could just get 10,000 of those out, maybe that would be the best possible solution instead of saying, we want them all out. We want to see revival in the church and revival in this nation. The God we serve is greater than the opponent that is against us. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Jesus in the darkest hour. It's always good to sort of get back to the Jesus model, isn't it? Because this is the model. That was the darkest hour at the cross. It looked like a Dunkirk. Righteousness was surrounded, being extinguished. He breathed his last. I mean, this is a hard moment, right? And yet, who is in control? We need to remember that. That when we stare at the cross, we remember the promise. And yet in three days, I'll rise again. My holy one, will his body will not see corruption. 
We need to remember what God has said. God has promised victory. And even though you have to stare at that, what seems like defeat, it is a temporal passage unto a greater victory. I like this. It sort of matches with the Jehoshaphat model. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. How did he approach that dark hour? He had something before him. It was a joy that was set before him. This wasn't the end for him. He knew that it was for something greater. The same is true for us. We have to have that joy set out there in front. We need to know that there is something greater. It's a mindset of victory. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is there a joy set before you? Are you staring at the temporal circumstances? You know, when you hear about a national mask mandate, a mandated vaccine, all the different things that cause us as Christians to sort of twist a little in our seat, going, whoa, how do we respond? Do we see a joy set before us? I don't care how thick the boards are. I mean, what, I don't know what you expected as a Christian, too. I mean, did you expect ease and everything was going to go you know, without challenge? You don't ever need to stand for anything. The government will just service your Christianity and pat you on the back and say, we're just so glad you're a believer in Jesus. That's highly irregular in Christian history. And so as a result, we are being designed for the darkest hour. Our darkest hour will look different than David's and Jehoshaphat's. It will not look exactly like that cross at Golgotha, the exact same picture, but it's all sort of the same template, the same storyline. Righteous man or woman stood up against impossibility, making a decision in their soul to believe that their God is greater. That is the pattern. Peter sticking something beyond the temporal uh, into the eternal. And you guys remember the story, I share this a lot of times at banquet night, uh, that he would oftentimes be noted to cry. And so when a cock would crow, he'd break down and cry. And it made some sense to people, you know, bringing back some memories. And yet there were other times, a big, huge, hulking fisherman, even in Christian history he's known as that, would just cry. And so one day someone asked him, Peter, why do you cry? And his answer was desiderio domini which translates from Latin to mean because I dearly long to be with my Lord. You see, there's something that needs to be out there that causes us to live with nobility in the now, in the difficulties. Peter is going to be brought to his end, and he is going to choose a more painful death. Instead of being crucified upright, he feels that it would be a disservice to the memory of what his Christ did for him. And so at his own choosing, he is going to choose a more painful death. Why? There's a joy set before him that he is going to, it's going to enable him to endure. It's a desiderio domini. I dearly long to be with him. I dearly long to honor him. I trust him. So this is the motto for crisis. This is, I've used this many, for many years. You can use it too. You can borrow my motto. Watch what my God will do. Stick the boards in front of me. I'm interested in what's out here, what's beyond it. My God is able, watch. And I have seen so many boards shatter before the living God. It's funny, have you ever noticed that you could see a board shatter and the next day another board gets in front of you and you sort of have an ache going, God, I, I don't wanna have to break any more boards. And yet, God wants to return us back to that and say, same truth. Just as we broke the boards before, you break them the same way. In fact, they seem to get thicker every time. Do you trust me, Eric? Yes. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and fed the 4,000 and then they, the disciples forgot their lunch? And like, he's mad at us because we forgot our lunch. And that's the way we can be, too. We can forget what is beyond. We can forget that we are with the one that feeds thousands and we can think that he's upset with us over the lunch. Whatever is that temporal, I want us to just freshly today remember what is beyond it. Our king is seated on high. 
He has defeated our enemy, and all things are beneath his feet. He is going to return someday soon, and every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Set that before you. There is no board that cannot be broken. There is no impossibility that can stare you down. You are a victor in Christ. That is your mindset. Father, this is for you. We, the church of Jesus Christ, here in America, believe you. We trust you. And it doesn't matter how dark it gets. Lord Jesus, we want to declare in unison together, in faith, with joy in our hearts, watch what our God will do. It's in the precious name that we pray this and declare this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.